All right. We are in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're actually starting in 9, the very end of 9. We'll close out chapter 9 tonight, and then we'll jump into 10. Um, so you can go ahead. If you've got your Bible, you can turn there. We, we've got the text on the screen. While you are turning there, I want to tell you a story. Uh, the 1980 Boston Marathon is, uh, was actually the, probably, it's, it's, it's in the top five, maybe the most famous event of that race uh, of all time. And, and the 1980 Boston Marathon, that specific year and that specific race is incredibly famous because of one name. The name is Rosie Ruiz. She was this relatively unknown Cuban-American runner who had, uh, who had signed up for this race. She had just qualified a few months earlier in the New York Marathon. Nobody really knew much about her, and, and no one knew anything of who she was, where she was from. But on that day in the Boston Marathon, she ended up surprising everyone and taking first place in the women's event. Now, the person that everyone was watching that day, the person that everyone expected to come in first, and they kind of had their eyes on, was this Canadian runner by the name of Jacqueline Garreau. And Garreau had placed, um, in her last four races, she had placed uh, first in three of the four, and then third in the last one. And everyone was expecting her to come up big in this race as well. But then, kind of out of nowhere, to everyone's surprise, this lady came running across the finish line and blew everybody away. Garou actually had an incredible race. She set what would have been the Boston Marathon record for women at that time. She came in at two hours and 39 minutes. It was the fastest up to that point that any woman had ever run the Boston Marathon, except for the time that Ruiz just put in right before that, which was two minutes and 31, or sorry, two hours and 31 minutes, which was not just the fastest time in Boston Marathon history, it was the third fastest marathon in world history ever run by a woman. And here this, uh, this woman came in that nobody had ever heard of, that nobody knew about, and did this, and people were floored. It was like the biggest upset in history. They didn't know what to do with this, and so they were, they were trying to figure out, because she cruised him, like well ahead of everybody, and did it without even breaking a sweat. And it was that last part that was a little bit suspicious to people, because literally, she did not have any sweat on her. You can see there's no pit stains there, right? If you're, if you're doing this after a 26-mile, no pit stains, right? That's, that's a big deal, okay? And, and it was 80 degrees that day. In the Boston Marathon, one of the things they talk about is there's very little shade on that track. And so for her to run 26 miles and to do that mostly in the sun and in not like a runner's shirt, but just like a T-shirt, right, that you go get at like Walmart or something and stamp MTI on it, like for her to do that and not be sweating was a little bit suspicious, also kind of suspicious was the, the fact that uh, Jacqueline Garreau, who was supposed to be winning, at the 18-mile mark, she was told that she was in first place. And in those last uh, eight miles, she didn't see anybody pass her. Somehow this person got past her without even being seen. And so that started to raise suspicion. And then Ruiz gave this interview that raised a lot of suspicion. I want to see if we can play that for you. See if you can hear this. Listen to this real quick. Whoop. Okay. 
All right. So, I don't know, you probably, we had the captions up there. Hopefully you caught it. So how did you improve your time? How did you bring your time down so dramatically? You've been doing a lot of intervals. And her answer was, what are intervals? All right, so she has no, now by the way, I had to Google what are intervals today, okay? So I don't know either. Apparently it's a, it's a, it's a track thing, right? Where you run like um, real intense and then you kind of alternate between intense and light stuff. All the runners in here are cringing right now as I try to explain that. The point is, I know about as much about intervals as Rosie Ruiz did, okay? And then, and then the, the uh, reporter even said there, we missed her at all the checkpoints. There's a reason that they missed Rosie at all the checkpoints. And that's because what Rosie did is she took a subway from the beginning to mile 25 and then slipped out into the, the pack of the men runners who were coming up kind of in this group. And she just kind of slipped out into them and then started running after them and came in, ran one mile and won the whole thing. And so they started, going, again, some of these things started seeming weird. They didn't know this. They started looking and checking. It took seven days. They gave her the medal. They put the crown on her head. It took uh, seven days, and they looked through 100,000 photographs of the race and couldn't see her in any of them. And then they, they went and checked with all the spotters at the different checkpoints, and none of them remembered seeing her. And then finally some people came up and said, yeah, we saw her jump out of the crowd and start running. Um, Ruiz actually went to her grave denying that she cheated, like never fessing up to the fact that she cheated and won that race. And, and so after eight days of being first place, she went from first place to disqualified. And then actually they went back and checked on that New York marathon that she ran and got 11th place to qualify for the, uh, for the Boston one, took a subway in the New York one as well. So she was disqualified in that one as well. And Ruiz has gone down as like one of the all-time like villains of marathon running. Like her name is just known for this. This person who came in and just made a mockery of the sport uh, by jumping out and winning first place with like a one-mile sprint. Um, but can I just tell you, um, while I do not condone Rosie's cheating, I can't say that I actually kind of get her. Like, I can kind of identify a little bit with Rosie. What Rosie wanted was to participate in this really famous marathon without having to do the hard parts, namely the running. That's the part that she didn't want to do, okay? But she wanted to go and be in this marathon, and I actually get a little bit. Why run 26 miles, 26.2 miles, when you can take a subway and then run one mile? Like that, that works, so you get to the same place, you get there so much faster, it's so much easier. I'm only half joking. The truth is actually this really does in a lot of ways, not the cheating, but a lot of this actually fits kind of my natural flow of life and that has been that I naturally for much of my life tended to avoid things that were hard. That is just kind of my natural mode of existence to take the easy route, to avoid difficult things, to do the things that are more fun than they, more, than they are complicated. And actually, there's some people who, who, who are opposite of that. There's some people who choose, who kind of like the challenge, who like to push themselves, those things. But, but I think the average person actually identifies a lot with that. Now, most of us would rather not do uncomfortable things. We'd rather do comfortable things. That's why we call it this comfort zone that we like to stay in. Most of us, if we've got the opportunity, are going to take the path of least resistance. That, however, is not the philosophy that the Apostle Paul operated by. 
And it's not the philosophy that he called his listeners in Corinth to operate by. Go with me to the end of chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 24 tonight. Like I said, I've got it on the screen. If you, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you tonight, you can follow along up here. Here's what Paul says. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body. Some translations say I beat my body and I bring it under strict control or bring it into submission so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. This is Paul's philosophy on how he lives this life following Jesus, that I am not playing around, that I'm not messing around with the life that is laid out in front of me, that I am going to go full tilt. And he's going to not only uh, kind of quote, or not, not only point out that this is his way of living, but he's going to call the Corinthians to think with this same kind of mindset. I want to give you real quick, just a quick kind of overview of these three chapters that we've been in real quick. And the reason that I'm doing this is because we actually started this section, chapters 8 through 10. We started this in November. Right? We, and that was a long ways ago. And then Alec came in and brought us a little bit up to speed on nine. But I just wanted to make sure that we kind of saw where we were at. And here, let me just tell you this. I really need you to appreciate this because this took me entirely too long this morning. All right? Like <laughs> half my sermon prep was trying to figure out how to draw circles on a PowerPoint presentation. Okay? Um, I did not take the easy route today. I took the hard route. All right? So this text starts because the people in Corinth were asking Paul, what are Christians supposed to do with food, with meat that has been sacrificed to idols? And the thing in Corinth was almost any meat that you bought would have been sacrificed in, an, in a pagan temple to an idol at some point. You didn't know for sure, but what would happen is they would slaughter a bull or they would slaughter a goat, and then part of that would be used in the sacrifice, and then the meat would be cooked in a ceremonial meal there, and what meat was left would go to the market. And there was no way to know. And so as a Christian, am I allowed to eat and consume food that was part of a pagan sacrifice? And this was the question. Some people said, yes, absolutely, it's no big deal. And some people said, no, 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 that's wrapped up in too much stuff from our old life. And there were some people that this became a very big deal for, and this would trip them up, and it would kind of remind them of the way they used to be and, and kind of even pull them towards that. And so Paul says this in chapter 8, you're totally free to eat that. You don't even have to wonder when you go to the meat market, was this sacrifice to an idol or not? Because idols aren't real. And so you can eat whatever you want to eat. But, he says, there are some people who struggle so much with it. And it's going to drag them down. It's going to trip them up. It's going to cause them to stumble. And if that's your brother, that's your sister, that's your friend, then forego your rights. Lay down your freedoms and give up meat. For that day, don't, don't eat it when you're around that person. You can lay that down for a greater cause. He kind of transitions in verse 13 and says, if what I eat would cause my brother or sister to stumble, I'll give up meat for the rest of my life. And that becomes this transition into what Alec talked about last week in chapter 9, that Paul uses his own life for them and says, listen, I have all these different rights as an apostle, but I haven't made use of any of them. 
I've laid them all down because I want to reach as many people as I can with the gospel. And I don't want to have anything that might be a stumbling block, anything that might get in the way of that. And then kind of the hinge point for this whole text is the section I just read to you, verses 24 through 27. Then he'll come into 10. This is what we'll talk about today, where he's going to give warnings against idolatry. And you're going to think that he's contradicting himself from chapter 8. But we'll examine that a little bit when we get there. And then the last part, eat and drink for the glory of God and for the good of others. He'll kind of reiterate what he said in chapter 8. You can eat whatever, but do it in a way that builds people up and glorifies God, not just for yourself. We actually, in November, we studied the first circle and the last circle together because they were already there. So we'll jump into chapter 11 next week. Um, but here is, uh, here's a little bit of our text for today. If you want to look back at 924, just so you know, we're going to spend a little bit more time in this first half, and then we're going to do a shorter section in the second half. I just want to make sure we cover this, and then we'll kind of shorten it up in our second half tonight. But look at verse, or chapter 9, verse 24 again. He says, Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way as to win the prize. Now everyone com who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Corinth actually sat eight miles away from this little isthmus. It was actually, I think, called the Corinthian Isthmus. And, and it was like this little peninsula there. And every two years, they held this competition there called the Isthmian Games. It was, from what I remember at least, second only to the Olympics as kind of like the major sporting event in the Mediterranean world there. So every two years, Paul was there in 49, 50, and 51. So more than likely, he was actually there when one of these Isthmian Games took place. And, and they would have known, the Corinthian people would be able to picture in their mind when Paul talks about about people who compete and who train themselves uh, furiously for a competition. If you were to compete in the Olympics um, back then, you had to make an oath before Zeus that you would devote the next 10 months of your life to training. You weren't allowed to until you came and made the oath. It was that big a deal. And so they would have this in mind. And, and when you won the Isthmian Games, you received this little crown made of pine. Okay, so when Paul says they do it to receive a perishable crown, a crown that will one day wither and die away, they give their all for that. And so why can't we give our all for something far bigger than that? He says, so I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. I'm not shadow boxing. I'm not joking around. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself not, may not be disqualified. Paul says, this isn't a game for me. I don't take it lightly. Eternity is at stake. And so I am willing to give up my rights. I am willing to lay down my comforts. I am willing to discipline myself. And I'm not just going to indulge every desire or every craving or every freedom that I have, even if I am free to do it. I'm ready to give it up for something greater and something bigger. And he says this really interesting line that is going to spring us into chapter 10. So that after I preach this gospel to others, I might not be disqualified for the prize. What I am calling everybody else to, to run towards the grace and the goodness of God, to receive heaven, to receive Jesus in heaven, I don't want to be disqualified for that. And then he's going to turn and say, and neither do you. And so let me talk to you about this. This is what he says in chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud. All passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 
They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. So what Paul is doing here is he's telling the Exodus story. The story of when God rescued this people, Israel, out of Egypt, and he created a new covenant people out of this group of slaves made them his very own through the Ten Commandments given through Moses. And he tells the story of how he rescued them out of the sea and then he fed them manna while they were in the wilderness. And then he he also kind of brought them through and guided them by this cloud that was his presence. And he fed them with water from a rock and all of these things. And he's recounting all of this to say, all of these people, you'll notice that word came up over and over again, all, all, all went through the Red Sea, all followed the cloud, all drank from the rock, all of them experienced the blessings of being God's people. Side thing, he says that they drank from the rock and the rock was Christ. There's this line in Deuteronomy 32, actually multiple lines. When Moses describes the Exodus story and their wanderings in the wilderness, he continues to refer to God as the rock that provided for them, the rock that took care of them, the rock that gave to them. And what Paul is saying is they didn't know that, but God, the God, the rock who was taking care of them was Christ. That Christ was at work there doing those things. And so he says all of them experienced these things, and yet he says the point, nevertheless, nevertheless, most of them did not get what they were aiming for. Most of them did not enter the promised land. In fact, we know that uh, when you read the Exodus story, we know that only two adults from all of the adults that came out of Egypt into the wilderness, only two of them actually made it into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. The rest of them ended up dying in the desert. They died in the desert because of sins. That's what he gets into in this next section, verses 6 through 10. Now, these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. So he listed off in the first part these four blessings that they experienced. Walking through the Red Sea, guided by the cloud, fed manna from heaven, and then fed or drinking water from the rock. And then he parallels that with these four major sins that they entered into over and over again. And so he tells these different stories. Exodus 32, when they begin worshiping the golden calf, um, the, this uh, story of sexual immorality where they begin to enter into these inappropriate relationships with some of the Moabites around them, testing God, grumbling after Moses over and over again. What he's doing there is not just describing the sins of Israel. He's actually describing the sins of Corinth. He's describing the sins of this church. If you've been with us this year, you know that there is no other church that Paul writes to that deals with more sexual immorality in more corrupt and crazy, mind-blowing ways than Corinth did. And we're about to find out that idolatry is another thing that many of them are wrestling with. We know that grumbling has been a big part as they have been complaining and backbiting once once, uh, once and again with each other, back and forth, over and over again. And all of this has been putting Christ to the test. That is like testing how far they can push. And so Paul is telling the Exodus story, but he's actually telling their story. 
He's actually telling them their own story. And and so here he gets in to describe their idolatry, or actually he describes a little bit more in verse 11. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. That is, those who are living in the time of Christ. Christ has come, and now it's the end of the age. He said, they were written for us. And then he says, so whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. If you want the theme verse of chapter 10, it's probably that right there. Whoever thinks he stands, whoever thinks he's in good standing with God, better be careful lest they fall. And then this verse, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you will be able to bear it. So as I said, verse 12 is the key to this passage. And what Paul is saying is that the Israelites experienced all these blessings, all these specific things that showed them that they were part of God's people. And yet they still fell under judgment. They still didn't make it to the promised land. They still had all these things. None of those things they experienced were guarantees that they were going to get the prize. Paul says, same for us. Just because, he says to the Corinthian church, just because you've experienced some really good things as a part of the church, just because you show up every Sunday and have communion, just because you were baptized, just because you've even engaged in spiritual gifts, don't take those as a guarantee that you won't deal with consequences when you sin back, when you continually live a life of rebellion against God. And this is what some of the Corinthians were doing specifically in this area of idol worship. Let me read 14 through the end. He says, so then, my dear friends, uh, flee from idolatry. I am speaking as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I am saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? He's talking about the communion cup. Uh, The bread that we break, is that not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. And consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? What am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be participants participants with demons. So here's what he says. Listen, when you take part in this ceremonial meal in church, communion, the Lord's Supper, bread and cup, he says there's a deeper spiritual reality going on in that, in that you are actually communing with the risen Christ. And you are communing with one another. There's a participation in this that is taking place. Same with the Old Testament sacrifices, he said. When a person ate a sacrifice in the Old Testament, take part of the meat in that, they were participating in the worship of God, in the worship of Yahweh. And so he says... When some of you Corinthian Christians go to a pagan temple, and you may stand back, and you may not be the one offering the the sacrifices there, but when you then go into the banquet hall and eat the food in celebration of that pagan god, you are participating in that worship. And no, there is no god Zeus, and no, there is no god Aphrodite, but the gods that are being worshipped, he says, there are spiritual forces at work underneath those things. That there are demonic forces, and I don't want you to be a part of that. He'll go on to say this. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? 
So it sounds at first like Paul is contradicting himself because in verse in, in chapter 8, he said, hey, idol food is no big deal. Eat whatever you want. Just make sure you don't cause your brother or sister to stumble. But the difference of what he's talking about here is in chapter 8, he's talking about food that you buy on the market. Or he's talking about food that you would eat in a neighbor's house. Here he's talking about the food that is specifically a part of the ceremonial meal that would take place in a temple, in a pagan temple. And that, Paul says, he is against. He's against them in these things and wants them to have nothing to do with it. God will not be mocked, he says. You can't have it both ways. You don't get to have idols and Jesus at the same time. You can't just assume because you're participating in Christian things that you're actually following Jesus. That's the message that Paul has for them in this moment. So whoever, he says, thinks that they are standing well, be careful lest they fall. Being a follower of Jesus, being a Christian, we use those words interchangeably here, you may notice. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, has always meant at least two things. If a person wants to belong to Jesus, if a person wants to be a Christian, from the time the Bible was written all through church history, it's always meant at least two things. The first thing is this, that you trust in Jesus. That you have faith in Jesus, that you trust that he is who he said he was, that is, the Son of God. And that he actually died on a cross and that when he did that, he paid for your sins so that they can no longer condemn you. And then that he physically rose from the grave and when he did that, he conquered all death so that it can never overcome you. And so you have to trust and believe those things. It involves faith in Jesus. But there's always a second thing that has always been involved in being a follower of Jesus. And that is this one. Following Jesus. Obedience to Jesus has always been there, that you actually make him not just your savior, but your Lord, and you do what he says. And people have always wanted to separate these two things and then choose one or the other. The traditional way is to choose the doing the good stuff things, the obedience to Jesus, because that's how other world religions work, is if I do enough good things, if I check all the boxes, if I'll be a really good person, then God will be pleased with me, and I get to go to heaven after I die, and that's what I can do. The Bible speaks very clearly against this. We are not saved by the good things we do. We were saved and loved by God long before we ever did anything good. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are saved by grace through faith, not by our good deeds. But then there are some who push on the other side and go, because I am saved by grace through faith, it means that I don't have to do anything. All I got to do is say a prayer. Ask Jesus into my heart. I did that at camp when I was eight. I'm good. All I got to do is get baptized. Happened to me when I was an infant. Or it happened to me when I was 12. Or it happened to me when I was seven. I got baptized. I I said the prayer. I did the thing. All I got to do is go to church. And that's good. And, And actually, no, the Bible speaks very clearly against that as well. Because it says, yeah, you're saved by faith. But the kind of faith that saves is coupled with actions. James 2.17, faith without works is dead. It's not faith. And these two things have always gone together. And Paul will not allow them to be split. And Paul makes a very serious case that when we, when we choose to follow Jesus, it's not just a walk, it's a sprint. And it's a long haul. And so we don't mess around. We don't just lackadaisically do this. 
We don't just goof off. This is seriously. He says we work hard. We discipline our body. We run with everything we got. He is intense about these things. He makes the Christian life sound very, very intense. Now, here's the point where some of you who are at retreat might have a different verse going through your head right now. It's a verse that was key in our retreat, especially on Saturday morning, and it was a really, really big one. This one from Matthew eleven twenty eight. I think we've got it on the screen. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, this is Jesus' words, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is is light. That word yoke, that was an actual word that like the rabbis, the teachers of the day, the yoke was used to describe their teaching, their way of life. So to take a rabbi's yoke upon you was to say, I'm, I'm going to follow your teaching. I'm going to yoke myself to you. I'm going to obey you. And Jesus says, my teaching, my way of life is easy and light. And Paul says, we beat the crap out of ourselves to try to follow him and that it's work, and that you stay on it. So the question is, which is it? Is Paul just blowing things out of proportion here? Is he just getting a little bit like crazy with some of this stuff? What's, what's going on in this moment? We're going to take a break for just a couple minutes, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to discuss that together. All right. So the question, is the Christian life hard or easy? Is following Jesus difficult, painful, or is it, is it easy? Is it a breeze? This is one that is worth working through, especially in light of the text that we just saw. There are some people who want to play the Bible against each other. I guess maybe kind of like what I just did. Sorry about that. There's some people who want to play the Bible against each other as though these two authors, as though these two teachers, Jesus and Paul, are in disagreement. That when Jesus first came, what Jesus actually offered was this easy and light way. Come to me if you're weary and burdened. But then Paul and others stepped in and complicated things, built up all these rules, made things so much bigger deal than they needed to be when all you really need to do is just go to Jesus and trust in him and be loving like Jesus and those kinds of things. But the truth is, Jesus says just as many, if not more, intense things than Paul does. Jesus says some very strong things. Just six chapters or five chapters after Matthew 11, uh, Jesus says this, Matthew 16, 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross that is, be ready to die and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. In Luke 14, he says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, he doesn't mean there in there that you need to literally hate your mother and father, your brother and sister, because Jesus speaks a lot about loving people, even your enemies. What he means, though, is that your devotion to me ought to be so intense, ought to be so full on that other relationships in comparison 
look like. Like they'll always kind of take second place to Jesus, a distant second place to Jesus. He'll go on later in Luke 14 to say, listen, if a guy is going to build a building, he doesn't just start building without stopping first to make sure that he has the materials, the resources, the money, the time to do this. If a king is going to go into war, he doesn't do this without stopping to go, wait a second, do I have the strength, the manpower, the resources to win this war? Jesus says, likewise, don't just come after to follow me until you stop and count the cost. Because it will count, it, it, it will be a cost. It will cost you. And so Jesus never does any sort of bait and switch. He's always very clear up front that it will not always be easy to follow him. So how do we make sense of this? How can Jesus say both of these things, Matthew 11 and Matthew 16? C.S. Lewis, in probably his most famous book, other than Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, his most famous book, Mere Christianity, has a chapter in which he wrestles with this. The chapter is actually titled, Is Christianity Hard or Easy? And he says that you cannot answer that question until you understand what is meant by Christianity. Till you understand what the Christian life is. The Christian life, I believe C.S. Lewis would say that the Christian life is defined by, is summed up in the words of Galatians 2.20, which says this. Sorry, go back. There we go. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Lewis would say, actually, that is the Christian, the Christian life right there. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The idea that the Bible teaches over and over again is that there is this Drew, this person that comes to Christ before I know him, that is what you might call the old self or the natural self. And this Drew cannot help it but to care only about Drew that I might care about others, and I might try to do nice things for people here and there and those kinds of things, but ultimately I am turned inward and it is my most natural bent to care about me and what I want. And yes, I can do good things, and yes, I can sometimes be a good person, but I'm always fighting against this natural bent to take care of myself. And this is what is called the old self or the flesh or the person behind. And most people, when they think of the Christian life, when they think of following Jesus, they think that it means I take that self, I take that Drew, and I try to make him a better self. That I try to do things, it's like a house that's got all these problems, and I look at it and I go, we need to do a little bit of work on this house. And so I look at what Jesus calls me to do. I look at what Jesus wants me to do and say, I gotta, I gotta add on to that. I gotta do a little bit of building project here and I gotta add on or I gotta gut this part of the house and I gotta take some things out. So I look at him and I go, okay, there's some stuff in my life that shouldn't be there. Right? Jesus talks about things like that. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be consumed with anger. I shouldn't be irritable all the time. I shouldn't be lusting. I shouldn't be objectifying other people for my own pleasure. I can see things in me that I have a lack of patience or I have a selfishness in me or I have all these other things. I have pride and I got I to gotta work on those. I got to get rid of those things. And so I start to work on those and I try to knock those parts out of my life to make myself a better self. And then I can look and go, but there are these other things that Jesus says I should have in my life. And I don't have enough of those. He tells me I should be loving and I don't love people enough. 
I should be defined more by humility. There's not enough humility in my life. I ought to be generous. And so, okay, I need to work on those. So there's certain things I got to get rid of, and then there are certain things I got to add on, and I got to do all of these things to kind of make myself a better self. And I get to work giving God all the things that he asks for, all the demands that he makes of me, trying to be good and trying to be a better version of myself. But the hope, C.S. Lewis says, even if I never articulate it, the hope inside of me is that there will always be a little bit of room left for that Drew. That like as long as I give God the things he's asking me, then there will still be a, a little bit of room left in me to kind of live how I want. The truth is that ultimately what I want is to be able to do all the right things and to be a more loving, kind, less prideful, less lustful person, but to still sort of be in charge. And I don't mean like in charge of my life, like choosing which major I want or which career I'm going to go to. Jesus, I don't think cares which major you choose. I don't think Jesus cares which career you enter into. What I mean by keeping a little bit of charge of my own life is that I get to kind of draw the lines as to how far I've got to go. Like, like this is a big one for a lot of people who follow Jesus. I'm called to give back. So I give my, we call it a tithe. I give my 10% to Jesus. That's what he wants, right? So I give my 10%, and the hope is as long as I give my 10%, then, then God will kind of leave the rest of this alone. And I get to make the rest of the decisions about this. As long as I keep giving my time, I'm not going to cheat you on that, God. I'm going to give that to you. That's yours. You call me to it, I'm giving it to you every time. But, but the good news is I still got my 90 to kind of do what I want with. Or to say things like, I, I know that God doesn't want me to sleep around with people. That I shouldn't just engage in that sort of lifestyle. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be more pure than that. But, but my girlfriend and I like, are really, we're really committed to each other. And like we really love each other. The truth is we're probably going to be married. And so I think God would kind of understand that I'm like, I know that's not exactly what he calls me to do, but he kind of is probably cool if we're sleeping together. Or I know that I'm called to love everybody. Jesus says, love even your enemies, but that dude over there is the worst, right? Or, or that girl is so mean and she's wronged me in so many ways. And so I know this truth, even as I try to love everyone around me, that I reserve the right to sit in a little bit of bitterness towards that person. I'm not going to forgive. Yes, I'm going to be a forgiving person, but I can't forgive that person. And the idea, C.S. Lewis says, it's like a man paying taxes. Who will be an, He'll be honest about it. He'll pay all the taxes that he needs to pay, but he's always secretly hoping that there's enough left for him to live on. There's enough left for the old person to still kind of, like, because if, if I don't look out for Drew, who's going to? Like, if I don't, If I don't make sure that there's some level of someone making sure that my life goes the right way, if I just give everything off, then what's going to happen to me? C.S. Lewis says this is what we're like. And this is what we do trying to hold to more and more of these things. And he says as long as you live that way, trying to do all the right things, trying to be a really good person, and yet still trying to hold on to some semblance of your old self, there will only be one of two results. The first is you're going to give up because it's so stinking hard to have this new version of you that's trying to do good and right things and this old version that is constantly at war within you and eventually you're going to realize I can't keep up with all this. I can't be good enough. I can't do all the right things. And you're going to get worn out and you're going to give up. Or you're going to stay the course and you're going to be a miserable human being. 
because you're going to spend your whole life fighting within yourself, frustrated at all the sacrifices that you have to make just to be a good person, just to make God happy. And it's so frustrating that you do all these things. And why aren't other people working and sacrificing the way I'm sacrificing? And it will frustrate you to no end. And you may stay the course, C.S. Lewis says, but you'll be far more miserable to be around than the person who's just utterly selfish. Because now you're just self-righteous. And now you just think all the time, why am I working so hard and other people aren't? And there's this thing that happens inside of us when there are these two parts warring within us. Scott used to work with a guy who, who talks about this condition. What happens when we give God half of our heart or even most of our heart is that I find myself loving God just enough to not enjoy my sin and loving my sin just enough to not enjoy God. You felt that? You know that feeling where it's like, I, I know the things I shouldn't do. I keep doing them, but all I ever feel is guilty for it. I'm not even enjoying this, but I, but I don't. I don't feel within me the drive or the passion to give this stuff up and to follow hard after him. That's why C.S. Lewis says there has to be a different way. And now you can throw the quote up. C.S. Lewis says the Christian way is different. Harder and easier, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out, hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit, and I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's the idea that he's talking about. This is what Paul is calling us to. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And it's harder because I'm laying down not just my bad behaviors, but I'm laying down my very self. I'm surrendering all of who I am. I'm laying down. I'm dying to my desires. I'm dying to my wants. And I'm surrendering them to Jesus, trusting him to take care of me, even if I'm not ready to do it for myself. But in the end, this is so much easier because what happens is Jesus begins to give me his heart. He offers it to me freely. And as I walk beside him and as I seek to surrender to him, my old heart goes. The old me dies off and a new one is there. Jesus gives me that and it's a heart that begins to have his desires rather than this constant war between my old natural self and this new self, this person that I'm trying to be. I get to have a whole heart. I can enjoy God for who he is. I can enjoy following him as I should follow him. This probably sounds scary to some of you. It does to me. I'll tell you that much. And I don't know how to make it just not scary. There's something about dying to yourself that just doesn't sound pleasant. But I believe Jesus when he says that when we come to him, that he, makes it, that he makes it our burden easy and light. That he is gentle. That his yoke is easy. So I want to leave you with just three quick thoughts that may, might ease a little bit of the tension inside of you. The first is this. 
know that when you seek to take steps towards Jesus, when you seek to die to yourself, know that God walks faithfully and patiently by your side in this. I kind of breezed past it earlier, but 1 Corinthians 10.13 is a verse worth underlining in your Bibles. Where Paul says, there is no temptation that you're facing that other people haven't faced before you. And you can know that no matter how tempting it is to give in to those lustful thoughts, to give in to pornography, to give in to my selfish desires, to give in to to, to bitterness towards someone who's wronged me, you can know this, that God will always be faithful to provide a way out for you. That he will always give you the strength to endure that temptation. He walks patiently and faithfully beside you. And he knows your weakness. And he does not roll his eyes at you when you fail. He does not shake his head and go, I can't believe you did it again when you fail. No. He is is gentle and lowly. His burden is easy and light. He is gracious to you. When my kids were learning to walk, my desire for them is that they would be able to grow up and run and engage in sports and do all kinds of fun things. That's what I wanted for them. But when they were learning to walk, I was pleased and thrilled with every little step they took, even if it was stumbling at the time. I wouldn't be satisfied with that. I want more for them. I want to take them further than that. I don't want them to stumble their way through life. I want them to be able to sprint. I want them to be able to run. I want them to be able to enjoy the freedom of engaging in those kinds of things. But I guarantee you I was pleased and happy with them even as they stumbled and failed their way through the learning periods. And God is with you. When you take the slightest step towards him and you fail and you fall on, his face, fall on your face, he's not angry. He's not rolling his eyes at you. He's easily pleased, George MacDonald says, even if he's not easily satisfied. Because he wants more for you, but he's easily pleased with the steps that you're taking. The next thing you need to know is this. Some of you may be listening to this. Some of you might be here tonight and and you're not a follower of Jesus. And you're going, why would I sign up for this? This does not sound pleasant. I I, I get that. I totally understand that. And Jesus doesn't mind laying it out and saying, yeah, it, it will be kind of hard. There's a cost here. But I just want you to know there is no option in which you don't serve a master. There is no option in which you get to live a lordless life, no one getting to choose or reign over you. No, no, no. If it's not Jesus, it will be something else. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You'll either serve God and me or you'll serve money, but you can substitute anything in there for money because what you want most in life, you will eventually be enslaved to. What you devote yourself to, what you have to have to be happy, that thing will eventually be your master. So there is no option to go without a master. The the question is, why not take the master who is gentle and lowly? Why not take the master who is loving and gracious? Why not take the master who, before he ever asked you to make a sacrifice, came and sacrificed everything for you? Why not take the master who gets down on his hands and knees and walks beside you and serves you and helps you all the way? You're going to serve somebody. Why not serve this one? Last thing I'd say to you, you may be going, okay, cool. Where in the world do I start? What do I even do with this? I don't even know what to do with with this kind of thing. Okay, give myself to him. I know that can be a lot to think. Here, let me just give you one practice. C.S. Lewis in that chapter also says this, the hardest part of the day and the most important part of the day is the very first moments when you wake up. 
Because it's in that moment, realize it or not, that all those natural desires become rushing into you. All those desires to make yourself seem important. All those desires to get the things you want. All those desires for self-protection. So the most important thing you do when you start the day is to start the day, and I would actually suggest this, to, to get out of your bed and start the day on your knees and surrender your day and surrender yourself and surrender your desires to Jesus. So I want them to be yours today. I want to give all, all the things that are coming at me, all the things that, that I feel inside of me that I want to be, that I want to go do. I trust you with those things. And if that's the way you're going to lead me, awesome. But I want to give this stuff over to you, God. And I would challenge you to make this, make this plan, that you would make a commitment for, let's say, one month. That every day you get up and the first place you go is to your knees. And surrender your day and surrender your thoughts and surrender your life to Jesus the, the master who sacrificed himself long before he asked you to sacrifice for him. One other thing you may consider is that before you look at this in the morning, that you might consider looking at this and letting God have the first say in your life before the world tells you a bunch of other things about yourself and about the way you live that probably aren't true. Go to your knees, and I challenge you to consider this. Listen. Is the Christian life hard or easy? It's both. It's hard to die to yourself. It's hard to give yourself up to Jesus. It's hard to surrender the things you want. But trust me, it is so much easier than what all of us are trying to do. It is so much easier than living enslaved to a master that won't give grace. Enslaved to a master that's just going to call for more and more and more from you without ever giving itself to you. He's the one who's worth seeking. With every bit of discipline you can, with every bit of effort you can, he is the one worth chasing and pursuing and giving your life to. Let me pray for you and we'll be done. Dear God, I thank you for your good word. I thank you uh, for the heart of Jesus gentle and lowly even as he demands very much from us I thank you for the truth that I won't promise to say I've experienced fully that I can't fully admit to that uh, but I believe it that the more I give myself to you the more joy I experience in following you that the life you've called to me is not a waste but it is the fullest life I trust Jesus when he says that I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. And I pray this for myself and for the people who are in this room, whether they know you yet or not. Lord, I pray this, that your spirit would work in them and confirm that truth to them, that Jesus offers the best and fullest life. And I pray, Lord, that you would give them a desire to seek you and surrender to you and a passion to run hard after you and a willingness to turn to you and your grace when they fail, because it's always there. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.